0: I had never meant to kill them. In fact, I did absolutely everything by the book. But they still died. Mr. Lee, the pet store owner, assured me that I hadn't done anything wrong. I secretly suspected he was keeping something from me, some critical piece of caretaking instruction or water-purifying product that would keep my fish alive, because whatever it was, by withholding it, he ensured my lucrative repeat business... He played the helpful counselor, however, and, according to him, the Japanese fighting fish sometimes just lost their will to live after a simple change in surroundings and performed a sort of fish-style harry-carry. Three of them wasted away, two of them became grossly bloated, and Jacques, Moby, and Ballard had all developed mossy gill disease. I looked sadly at my ninth and longest-living fish the six-month trooper whom I thought had changed my luck. Shackleton, so named for miraculously surviving an unfortunate wintertime power outage that had turned his bowl into an ice-bound wasteland, stared bravely back. Amazingly, he had lived through being thawed out. I'd assumed this proved he was some sort of fish messiah, a powerful spiritual leader of the marine realm. But I should have known that even the mightiest of fish couldn't survive for long in my murderous clutches. I was beginning to obsess about the implications for my fitness as a future mother if I couldn't even keep a tiny little fish alive for more than a few months when I caught sight of the clock. Twelve minutes. I quickly grabbed some magazines for the commute and rushed out the door, barely remembering to shed my sling along the way. The good thing about working for a senator I respected was that I felt like I had a chance to make a positive difference in the world every day. The bad thing was that I worked so hard I didn't have time to notice things like the fact that I was wearing two different shoes until I was already on the red line, rapidly approaching my stop. And the pathetic thing was, I probably wouldn't have noticed at all if I hadn't caught the snickering glances of two perfectly groomed Senate pages and looked down to let myself in on the joke. In my opinion... It's not totally unreasonable to mix up two pairs of shoes of the same style but slightly different colors, like a navy blue and black loafer. Embarrassing, sure, but understandable, particularly if one didn't have a right arm to turn on the closet light while one rooted around with one's healthy limb. But a tan sandal and a bright red sneaker? I was fairly certain the only people capable of that would have to be somewhat mentally handicapped. Apparently... They could also be me. I decided to act like I knew exactly what I was doing, and shot a pitying glance at the two page babes, a glance that communicated how sorry I felt for them that though they were immaculately quaffed, they clearly hadn't heard about the newest look to hit the runways. And I, I who read The Economist for fun on the way to work because, yes, I was that smart and genuinely interested in what it had to say, also happened to be on the cutting edge of fashion. How sad for them, my demeanor purred. How fabulous to be me. With that work done, I exited the metro at Union Station and made my way down First Street to the Russell Senate Building, holding my head high and silently cursing the fact that I didn't have time to run into a shoe store and buy anything that made me look less like a clueless fool. But I'm used. Even if I did have the time, there are some things money just can't buy. Janet, the ultra-competent, middle-aged personal aide to the senator, glanced up as I entered the office. While talking on her phone headset, stapling a stack of briefs with one hand and making a scheduling change with the other, difficult multitasking even with two perfectly intact arms, she also managed to smile at me. R.G. will be here in five. He needs the committee brief right away, she said in her pleasant but no bullshit tone. It's all ready, no problem, I smiled back, trying to project confidence and professionalism before my first cup of coffee, which was no small feat. R.G. was office shorthand for Robert Gary, junior senator from my home state of Ohio. The committee brief was for the Senate's health care committee hearing on prescription drug plans for the elderly, scheduled to begin that morning. And I was responsible for the brief, along with shepherding the constituents slated to testify because I was a domestic policy advisor to Senator Gary. The fact that I had managed to become a health care analyst for a United States senator at the age of 26 still surprised me, and I lived in fear that someone would realize how ridiculous it was to have given me this sort of authority and fire me on the spot. Born and raised in Ohio, I owed my passion for government to my mother, a political science professor for whom fostering interest in public service came naturally. From the beginning, I'd been an eager and enthusiastic student, and perhaps most significantly, my mom's only full-time one. Under her tutelage, I'd learned early that participation was paramount and that change could be just an effort away. Together, we'd drawn up campaign posters for local candidates, passed out voter registration forms, and canvassed neighborhoods for initiatives in which we'd believed. In the mornings before school... She'd helped me read the newspaper and answered my questions. In the evenings, she'd edited my letters to the President for spelling mistakes. It had never occurred to me that all this might make me an enormous dork. I loved it. I'd begun taking up my own causes in grade school. I'd tried to protect the rainforests, adopt litter-free highways, stop animal testing, ship school supplies to impoverished children in Haiti, and generally save the world one bake sale at a time. In high school, I'd become obsessed with issues of free speech, railing against censorship and challenging the school newspaper to rise above it. I'd written passionate papers about how freedom and rebellion represented the beating heart of democracy. I hadn't been above invoking these themes to denounce the tyranny of dress codes and curfews. I'd run for class office here and there, but mainly devoted myself to general activism. It hadn't been until college at the University of Cincinnati, but I'd developed a more specialized interest in healthcare policy. This interest had grown out of a particularly intriguing freshman seminar on communicable diseases, a seminar which had provoked both a passion for healthcare reform as well as a terror of the essential vulnerability and filthiness of the human body. From that seminar forward, a sore throat was never just a sore throat. It was much more likely the beginning stages of Ebola rickets, or wasting disease. Since then, I had dedicated myself to doing the little I could to prepare for the disasters that were sure to befall my relatively defenseless body. I had also devoted myself to studying the complexity and flaws of the country's healthcare system. Its inadequacies and inequalities had offended and embarrassed me. I hadn't been able to understand how the government could continue to allow nearly 44 million Americans, many of them children, to go uninsured. I'd been horrified to discover the price gouging that went on and the toll that it took on lower- and middle-class families. And as my mother's daughter, I had resolved to do what I could to bring about change. While slaving away on my thesis, I had landed interviews with Ohio's 19 members of the House of Representatives and both senators. Senator Robert Gary had impressed me as head and shoulders above the rest with his thorough grasp of healthcare issues and his long-term vision as he'd answered my questions and talked about his plans for reform i'd felt a mixture of awe and inspiration i'd sent gary a copy of my thesis and immediately volunteered for his re-election campaign upon graduation i'd been flattered and terrified when he'd remembered me complimented my thesis and asked me to work with his domestic policy team specifically on healthcare issues I'd thrown myself into it, written a couple of noteworthy briefs, and after Gary had won in a landslide, been asked to join his D.C. staff, which was how I'd suddenly found myself in a position of real influence. Scary, but true. I barely had time to sync my BlackBerry and scan emails before Janet was buzzing my line. R.G.'s here. He added a meet-and-greet with the teachers' union, so you only have ten minutes right now to get him up to speed for the hearing. Go. As I rushed to his office, I wondered if I would be able to brief him in only ten minutes if I didn't have a tongue. I could probably come close if I was equipped with markers and flip charts and more advanced charade talents than I currently possessed, but it would be tough. I'd been told I had very expressive eyes, though, so long as I could use those... Ooh, no tongue and blind. Now that would probably stump me. How exactly would I go about, can I help you with something? Senator Gary's sarcastic impatience put an end to my planning by alerting me that I must have been standing in his office looking like an entranced idiot for a good ten seconds. After.